If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Titus, uh, Paul's letter to Titus, and chapter 1. Just about midway through your New Testaments, Paul's epistle to Titus, chapter 1. And I'd like us to read this morning the first four verses of this chapter as we begin a new series this morning, Paul's letter to Titus. Please follow along as I read Titus 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Imagine that you live at a time and in a place where immorality prevails, uh, where the truth is not valued, where false speech and false narratives abound, a society that is overrun with materialism and greed, and where power is awarded to those most skilled in manipulating and deceiving others. Now, now what society am I asking you to imagine? Maybe some here think that sounds like our world today. Maybe that sounds to some degree like uh, our own nation. And well, these things may or may not be true, depending upon uh, your vantage point as you look on at America today. It's not America that I have in mind. I'm actually asking you to imagine ancient Crete, uh, the island in the Mediterranean Sea, uh, southeast of Greece which is where Titus was stationed when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter in the early to mid-60s A.D. Uh, Paul, we will see in subsequent weeks, famously quotes one of the Cretan philosophers in verse 12 of chapter 1 to describe the Cretans. Quoting this philosopher, he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul adds, this testimony is true. Uh, in fact, the Greek word, kretitzain, uh, which would be to, to cretize, that, that word cretin became a verb in those ancient days, to cretize actually meant to lie to someone or, or to uh, deceive someone. Even in English, we don't use this word that often, but if we refer to a group of people as cretins, referring to people as being in some way vulgar or dishonest or something like that. That word in English today still has that meaning. This uh, uh, land was so overrun uh, with a lack of regard for the truth, with a willingness to manipulate, deceive, and to lie, that the word Cretan itself came to bear this meaning that one is a liar, one is dishonest or manipulates others. Could you imagine if Paul could say those words in verse 12, quoting that Cretan philosopher of, of our context today? Uh, so Americans or North Carolinians or Winston-Salemites are liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. I wonder what you would recommend as a solution, as a remedy to such a society. That would be an interesting question for us to discussed together. How do you begin to remedy a society that is rampantly immoral and does not value truth but rather values the ability to manipulate and deceive others? Now, as interesting as our answers might be to that question, as interesting as the various remedies and solutions we might propose could be, I'm much more interested in your answer to this question. What if you could gather up all the Christians in such a society, and you could advise them. You, you, could, you could speak to them and give them words as to how they're 
to live, what they should do in such a society. What should the Christians do in such a context like this one that's described for us in Crete? That is what the book of Titus is all about. How should Cretan, or excuse me, Christians live in a Cretan society? And as I personally see only more and more parallels between ancient Crete and our world today, I could hardly imagine a more relevant book for us to turn to in our next series through books of the Bible. So today we're beginning a new series in Paul's letter to Titus. Now appreciating the context of this book is tremendously important if we're going to interpret it faithfully. And so anybody, any scholar, theologian, pastor coming to the book of Titus is aware that there are at least two very significant contextual factors things going on in the world of the book of Titus that we need to be aware of if we're going to interpret this book faithfully. Uh, The first is, of course, to understand what I've already remarked upon, and that is uh, what that world of Crete was like, and particularly what the Cretan culture and society was like, and how far gone that society was down the road of immorality and deceit and a lack of regard for the truth. And we're going to talk a lot more about the Cretan context in future messages. A second thing we must be aware of if we're going to interpret Titus faithfully is to appreciate that among the Christians, the professing Christians in Crete, there was apparently prevailing among the churches there a certain type of false teaching. And one of the things Titus was called to do was actually to refute false teachers who were there in Crete and to establish faithful, godly elders who can lead the Christians there. And so we're going to talk more in days to come, weeks to come, about precisely what that false teaching was and how it was infecting uh, the Cretan church there. Uh, But for now this morning, for our purposes today, I'll just mention by way of context uh, that Paul is writing this letter to Titus toward the end of his life. Uh, The three major missionary journeys, if you are familiar with the career of the Apostle Paul, those three major missionary journeys are behind Paul. And uh, we know from the New Testament and also from church tradition that Paul was imprisoned in Rome, we believe, in the early 60s AD. It was during that time that he wrote what are known to Christians as the prison epistles. Uh, That's uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Uh, But then at some point, apparently, Paul was released, and he had the freedom for at least a couple more years uh, to carry on his ministry and to visit various churches and to uh, proclaim the gospel in various places. Uh, before he is eventually imprisoned in Rome, we believe, one last time, and it's there, tradition has it, that he is actually martyred for the faith. So Titus and its twin letter, First Timothy, also written to a young agent of the Apostle Paul, uh, are both written, we believe, between those two imprisonments. Think early to mid-60s AD. Paul is probably in just the final few years of his life. He's not yet in that final imprisonment, but he is... Uh, conscientious about passing along the truth to these young apostolic deputies, Timothy and Titus, and helping them uh, to minister among the churches in variously Ephesus and Crete and in other places. So Paul has not yet come to his end, but he's nearing his end as he writes this letter. This morning, as we come to these first four verses, as introduction to the letter, I want us to ask three questions to frame our time this morning in the text. Uh, The first question is, what do these verses tell us about Titus? Secondly, what do these verses tell us about Paul? And that's uh, where the central part of the sermon is. What do these verses tell us about Paul? And then thirdly, what do these verses tell us about God? So what do we learn in Titus 1, 1 through 4 about Titus, about Paul, and about God? First of all, what do these verses tell us about Titus? The reality is not much at all. Uh, All we get is Paul's introduction of Titus as his true child in a common faith in verse 4. We're going to, of course, learn a lot more about Titus in in this book. We'll learn a lot more about who he was and what his relationship to Paul was. But do we have access to any more information about Titus in the New Testament? And as a matter of fact, we do. We know that Titus was Greek by birth. Uh, So he was a Gentile, that is to say, He was not a Jew. We know he was a Gentile because Paul mentions this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 3, as he tells us that he, Paul, 
was pressured by false teachers, the, the Judaizers there in the Galatian context. He was pressured to circumcise Titus, who was Greek, in order to bring him into line with the Mosaic law. And of course, Paul refuses to do so, discerning in this request from the false teachers a perversion of the gospel itself. So they're essentially requiring Titus to be circumcised in order to even be accepted as a believer, to be accepted into the community of faith. And Paul famously refuses to do so, discerns in that a compromise of the gospel. Lucky, of course, for Titus. Uh, you may know that Timothy was not so fortunate. Different circumstances, different issues at play. Uh, Titus was likely converted under Paul's ministry uh, and was discipled by Paul and had apparently proven himself to be very useful to the Apostle Paul. He eventually becomes a co-laborer with Paul and is with him actually in a number of places throughout his ministry. Uh, though he's only obliquely referenced in Galatians, uh, Titus factors prominently in uh, the letter of 2 Corinthians. Uh, and it's there in 2 Corinthians that Titus is mentioned no less than nine times. Uh, every time uh, it's indicated Paul's warm-hearted confidence and trust in young Titus. It appears that Titus was sent by Paul uh, to carry on two key missions to the Corinthians. If you are familiar at all with the Corinthian church, it was a church fraught with problems. Uh, we learned that in the epistle of 1 Corinthians. Uh, but, but Titus, apparently sometime after that letter of 1 Corinthians was written, Titus was given the task to deliver to the Corinthian church what many scholars have called the severe letter. Okay, so this is a letter actually between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. It's a letter we don't have in the canon of Scripture. The Holy Spirit did not purpose it to be in our canons, but apparently there was some communication between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and that's what scholars call the severe letter. It's that letter that Titus was tasked to deliver. Apparently, this letter contained a severe rebuke from Paul to the Corinthians for their rejection of his apostolic authority, and in sending this blistering rebuke, Paul had no small amount of anxiety about how the Corinthians might respond. He says in 2 Corinthians 2 that as he wrote that letter, the severe letter, that he was in much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears. So here Paul is writing this rebuke of the Corinthian church, and he's burdened for how it's going to go. And who's the man he sends? Well, he puts the letter in the hands of Titus, and he entrusts Titus to go and deliver this letter, this message to the Corinthian church. Now, don't think that this simply means that Titus uh, dropped the letter off at the church office and then went on to Applebee's or something like that. Uh, no, Titus was responsible to represent the Apostle Paul and his burdens and concerns and to represent the issues of that letter to the Corinthians. So we should imagine that Titus would have been responsible to interact with the church in their response to the letter, to answer any questions the Corinthians had, and potentially to undergo the very difficult task of trying to apply the letter to the Corinthians particularly. All of these things were part of Titus's responsibility as Paul's deputy. Not a pleasant task, as you can imagine. Uh, we use the phrase, don't shoot the messenger. Why do we say that? Well, because apparently, in the midst of a tense situation, someone sends a messenger to deliver a message. Uh, that messenger can be caught in the line of fire. And so, you might think Titus's task might have been harder than Paul's task. He could kind of write the letter, you know, stamp it to the Corinthians, but Titus is the one who has to be there to deliver the severe letter, the severe rebuke. So del Titus delivers the letter, and when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, I want us to hear what he says about the job that Titus did. In 2 Corinthians 7 verse 5, Paul says this, writing to the Corinthians, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. So apparently, Paul still has anxiety over how this is going to go. And then he says this, verse 6, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. And then on down in verse 13, Therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said 
to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus is proven true, and his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. So apparently, we're to imagine that as the result, no doubt, of Titus's tactful leadership in delivering the letter and representing its concerns, the Corinthians apparently had a dramatic change of heart in relation to Paul, surely do in no small measure to Titus's leadership and care and ability to minister to the Corinthians. Well, then we read in the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 8, apparently Titus was sent on another delicate diplomatic mission to the Corinthian church. In chapter 8, we learn that apparently the Corinthian church had pledged a certain amount of money toward this offering that Paul was taking up for the needy saints in Jerusalem. So you have a largely Gentile church has pledged to give money to a largely Jewish church, but has not yet fulfilled that pledge. Who's the guy Paul is going to send to collect? He sends Titus, uh, perhaps another unenviable task. Uh, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that my family, uh, that is my brothers and sisters all grown now, we went to the beach. Uh, we had to rent a house out there and all of that, and, and the lot fell to me to go ahead and book the house, and so we had to put the money down, and then I had to go to each of the seven siblings and collect, and my brother Zach, who most of you know, uh, sent me money very promptly, and I said, hey, thanks for sending me your bit so promptly, and all he wrote back is, I do not envy your task of uh, going around and collecting. Well, that was Titus's job, to collect the funds uh, that had been pledged. But now, bringing it back to Paul's letter to Titus, we are meeting up with Titus as Paul has left him in Crete, and we read his assignment. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, that's not so bad, right? Uh, find some qualified men, men of character, men of virtue, men with ability to teach the Scriptures, lay hands on those men, put them in the proper churches there, and have a big celebration. Not exactly, because we read in verse 10, Paul says, for there are many, how many is many? I don't know, but, but many, who are insubordinate empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And this is where he says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, you, Titus, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. This would appear to be another task that no one would covet. He's not just to go in there and appoint elders. He's to root out false teaching, and he's to withstand these men to their faces and rebuke them sharply. Okay, I give you all of this history and background on Titus. First of all, because I think it will help us down the road in interpreting this letter to Titus over the next several weeks. And so, this is background information I want us to hang on to as we consider this book over the next few weeks. But secondly, I just want us to appreciate something about Titus's example. As I was gathering Titus's personal history here, he just stood out to me as a remarkable man. And uh, I came across this quote from William Barclay about Titus. He says this, Titus was the man for a tough assignment. There are two kinds of people in the world, people who can make a bad situation worse and people who can bring order out of chaos. Titus was the man to send where there was trouble. So think about this. Titus was probably, at least I get this impression from the way in which Paul talks to him, Titus was probably a youngish man. But imagine the sort of pastoral ability, the sort of maturity, the sort of gentleness, the sort of care and empathy, the sort of courage and boldness, the sort of shepherdly instincts this man must have had in order to accomplish these great tasks. He's an apostolic delegate delivering a severe rebuke 
to a proud church. Uh, He's a fundraiser going to collect money from a largely Gentile church for a largely Jewish church. He's an apostolic deputy sent by the Apostle Paul to go into these churches, root out false teaching, rebuke the false teachers, send them packing, and appoint new elders. What a choice man uh, Titus must have been. Uh, He was the sort of man to send where there was trouble. And I just want to observe what a good example he is to us. I I think the world is, is filled with people who know how to make a bad situation worse. If we're being honest, the church is filled with people who have the ability to make a bad situation worse. But I just want to hold up Titus's example. We need more men and women like Titus. Men and women who know, who are skilled, who are learned in how to bring order out of chaos. Men and women that you could send into a tense situation where there is trouble. The, the kind of woman that you say, just, just, just send Jane over to the house, and, and, and trust me, I know things will go better. She's such a peacemaker. She's so meek. She, she, she has a way of, 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 of bringing about solutions to, to tense situations. Send her there, or, or, or send John uh, to the meeting tonight. He just has a way about him where he's He's a peacemaker. He's gentle. He can see a situation. He knows how to apply uh, different arguments and different solutions to a tense situation. People who know how to bring order out of chaos. People to send when there is trouble. Well, apparently Titus was such a man. He was Paul's true child in a common faith. Now, secondly, let's ask, and this is really the heart of the message, what do these verses tell us about Paul? What do these verses tell us about Paul? And these verses specifically tell us a great deal more about Paul than they do about Titus. So let's read them again, uh, the first three verses. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I, Paul, have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. These verses tell us a little bit about Paul's story. They particularly focus on Paul's calling. And that is what I want us to consider now. Paul's calling. What do we learn about Paul's calling in these verses, and there's a few questions we could ask to answer that question. First of all, to what role was Paul called? To what role or or office or station was Paul called? We have that in verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, First of all, he's a servant of God. The Greek word is a, a, a doulos of God. Uh, The word is actually most often translated a slave of God. Paul frequently speaks of himself as a slave of God or a slave of Christ Jesus. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, if you you know what a doula is, uh, the original meaning of that word was a female slave who helps with uh, a delivery uh, of a baby. We still use that word in our culture today. It comes from the Greek word doulos. Paul describes himself that way as a doulos of God. In other places, is a doulos, a slave, a servant of Christ Jesus. And this is meant to emphasize Paul's loyalty to the Lord, his obedience and his devotion, that they belong entirely to his master. Paul is all in, sold out. He is a servant, a slave of God. And he seeks to serve and obey God and God alone. Paul in Romans 6 emphasizes uh, that this slavery to God is actually in direct antithesis, direct opposition to our slavery to sin. So he says in Romans 6, 21 and 22, that the outcome of slavery to sin is death, but the outcome of slavery to God is sanctification that leads to eternal life. And that's where Paul makes his famous statement in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is everlasting life. That is, if you are a slave, a servant to master sin, the wages you will get is death and judgment. Rather, if you serve master God, the Lord Jesus, the wages He will pay you 
is everlasting life. It's not Paul's burden here in Titus 1 to say this, but I just feel burdened to say this. Everyone in this room is serving just one master, one of two masters. Uh, No one's a free agent in here. We're all slaves or servants to one or the other. Either you are a slave or a servant to sin and self and Satan and darkness, or you are a slave or a servant of God. And for those of you who are serving master sin, master self, living as a slave to sin and sinful indulgence and serving your own sinful pleasure, thinking you can do so without any consequences, I warn you in the presence of God and these witnesses here that the wages of sin is death. My friend, the gift of God, the wages He will pay to those who follow Him in repentance and faith is everlasting life. Well, Paul says he himself is a doulos of God, a slave, a servant of God. Then Paul says, what he customarily says in the opening of his letters, that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul, along with the twelve, were specially called of Christ to be his unique ambassadors in the world. They held an office that was altogether unique and transitional in that New Testament age. These were those called out men, sent out men who had actually witnessed the risen Christ. The twelve, of course, shortly after Jesus' resurrection, and Paul, in a fairly unique fashion, uh, the Lord Jesus appears to him uh, while he's on uh, the road to Damascus on his way actually to persecute Christians. So Paul's career prior to becoming a Christian was to be a hater of Christians and one who tried to disrupt the church. But in Acts 9, it's recorded that Jesus appears to him and calls him to be an apostle. And, and, and we read there, as the story goes, Paul, then called Saul, is blinded uh, for a few days, and he's in this house, and uh, Ananias is told to go and find Saul. Picking up in Acts 9, verse 13, we read this, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. In a number of other places, Paul remarks on this calling that he had as an apostle. Galatians 1 is another example where Paul reflects on his awareness that God had set him apart in a unique way to preach the gospel to the nations, that God had called him even before he was born, and that he was to have this unique role in redemptive history to reveal the mysteries of the gospel to the peoples of the world. And Paul reflects on this calling with similar awareness in our text. If you would look with me at verse 2. He says that this calling is in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. And he says this, and at the proper time, manifested in his word, so God's word, he manifests in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. You notice how closely Paul is linking the word of God with his, Paul's, preaching. God is now manifesting His Word, and He's doing it through my preaching. Paul had this awareness that there was this transition that had taken place. A new age was dawning in the history of the church. And Paul, along with his fellow apostles, were specially called of God to reveal His Word, to reveal the mystery of the gospel, to preach the good news among the nations, and to reveal things that were formerly obscure in the Old Testament, to make them plain for God's people all throughout the world. Paul knows that one chapter is done, a new one has opened, and one more is anticipated when Christ will come again. And he just calls this this changing of the ages, this new chapter, he just calls it the proper time. At the proper time, God now is manifesting his word, and he's doing it through me, the apostle Paul, through my preaching, and the preaching of the other apostles. So to what role was Paul called? He was a slave and a servant of God, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. A second question we should ask about this calling, for what purpose 
was Paul called. He's a servant of God. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus. But why? Why do we have 13 letters from the apostle Paul in the Bible? Why should we care at all what the apostle Paul thinks? Look again at verse 1. Paul writes, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for, like here's the purpose. Why was Paul called? Why all that business in the book of Acts? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. The commentators, you read them, they all say it's a very complex sentence. And my Greek skills are okay, but that causes me some fear and trepidation. So let's break down the sentence and try to appreciate why was Paul called, for what purpose was Paul called. First of all, he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, or as the RSV has it, makes it a little clearer, to further the faith of God's elect. See, Paul has in mind here edifying or building up or increasing the faith of God's elect, those who were chosen by God from among the world, who in time came to saving faith and repentance. He has them in mind. I'm called for them. And my calling is to build up their faith, to edify them in the faith. Now, you know this, right? The the nature of faith is such that it can fluctuate. Faith is not a static thing. It's a dynamic thing. So, the disciples can pray in Luke 17, Lord, increase our faith. Like, you can have faith to one degree, and then it can increase to another degree. Jesus speaks in these sorts of comparative terms, like, if you have the faith even or only of a mustard seed, like, that's a small amount of faith, you'll still be able to do great things. The point is, faith can fluctuate. And Paul is saying, for God's elect, for God's people, this is my calling. I've been called as a servant of God. Like, I've been saved. I've been born again. And I've been called as an apostle to further the faith of God's people. So, brothers and sisters, Paul exists. We have 13 books of his in the New Testament for your faith. Every time you approach a letter of the apostle Paul, you should think God at the proper time called Paul so that my faith can be strengthened by these words recorded here. Paul exists. He wrote for God's elect at all places throughout time that their faith would grow and that it would increase. And by the way, it's not just that the faith of of those Christians there in Crete would grow, but that also more and more men and women throughout the world would be introduced to Jesus Christ and that they would be introduced to faith for the first time. Do not think for a second by Paul's use of that phrase, elect of God, or God's elect, that that's somehow uh, 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 opposed to missions in some sense. Paul is going throughout the world in the early days of the church to find God's elect to preach the gospel to them. And he is seeking to call out men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And that work is still going on through God-ordained preachers today and through the evangelism of Christ's church. Paul is after God's elect for the introduction and the furtherance of their faith in God. But then Paul says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and we could supply the word for, their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. That phrase, which accords with godliness, can be read that produces or leads to godliness. So, Paul's called for the faith of God's elect to further their faith, to increase their faith, for some to introduce them to faith for the first time, and for their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So, we should just observe here, Paul's goal in his ministry is that God's people would know the truth and that they would grow in their knowledge of the truth. God wants, excuse me, Paul wants, and God in Paul wants you, Christian, to know the doctrines of the Bible, to know the truth of God's Word. It's a good thing for Christians to be under sound preaching and in Bible classes and in good Bible studies and accessing resources to help them better understand the truth. Like, if you are after more knowledge of God and His Word, you are in line with the very calling of the Apostle Paul. God wants His people growing in their knowledge of the truth. He wants their maturation. He wants them to grow in 
maturity. You read the prayers of the Apostle Paul. He's always praying to God, almost always. In almost every situation where we have a recorded prayer of the Apostle Paul, he prays for the knowledge of the Christians and whatever church he's writing to, to grow. That God would grant believers to grow in their knowledge. So Ephesians 1.17, Paul prays that God would give to the Ephesians the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Colossians 1 verse 9, Paul prays that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In Philippians 1 verse 9, Paul prays that their love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. If you want to pray like the Apostle Paul for yourself and for other Christians, pray that you and they would grow in knowledge. Don't let anyone make you feel your appetite for more knowledge of God and His Word is somehow prideful or self-righteous or pharisaical, or that somehow knowledge is antithetical to love and good works. One of the reasons Paul was converted, one of the reasons Paul was called as an apostle of Jesus Christ is so that Christian people would grow in their knowledge of God. And knowledge like faith is not a static thing, it's not just a bare pool of facts, it's a dynamic thing. We know God and His Word more deeply, uh, more correctly, more in accord with His will and the truth. But then Paul adds, and this is so crucial, a most important qualifier. It is called the knowledge of the truth which accords with or leads to godliness. This is the kind of knowledge, apparently, that produces godliness of life, holiness of life, good works that glorify God, we can only conclude that there must be a type of knowledge that does not accord with godliness. You know that, right? There's a type of knowledge, a type of accumulation of bare data that doesn't actually produce godliness of life. And apparently there was something like this even in the Cretan context. Uh, this type of knowledge that Paul wants the Cretans to have, knowledge that uh, accords with godliness or leads to godliness, apparently was not on offer by the false teachers in Crete. We read in verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Like that's a false knowledge. They don't really know God because as we evaluate their works and their manner of life, they show that they don't really know God. They deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This little phrase, knowledge that accords with godliness, or faith and knowledge that accord with godliness, this is the theme of the book of Titus. Titus is all about good works, living godly and holy lives that are pleasing to God, being a people who are zealous for good works. And Paul is going to try to explain, to, to, to show the, the Cretan Christians that, that the grace of God that has saved them, the salvation that they have in Jesus Christ, the faith and knowledge they have come to have in Jesus Christ is meant to lead them. It's so transformative that it actually makes them completely new. It makes them zealous for good works. It makes them lovers of their neighbor and lovers of the good. It's all about how to live as godly people in a Cretan context. So, it's here that I present to you the thesis of the book, the purpose of the book as it's contained in Titus 2, verse 11 through 14. If you look at those verses with me, this summarizes, I think, very well the message of Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Amen. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are what? Zealous for good works. Did you catch that up in verse 11 and 12? What does the grace of God do? We often put the grace of God like in opposition to works, don't we? There's like this antithesis we were, well, are you a grace person or a law person or something like that? What does the grace of God do? 
Paul says in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. It brings salvation for all people and then trains us, disciplines us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. My friend, don't, don't put grace and law or grace and righteousness in competition with one another. Grace is not that function of God's happy, clappy kindness that gives us a free pass to live however we want. The grace of God, bless God, saves us. And then that same grace, it's so transformative and it's so powerful, it, it like trains us. The image is like, like being disciplined for a task or a race or like a soldier in, in the army disciplines himself. The grace of God is training us. In fact, I'm reminded uh, Jerry Bridges wrote a fantastic book titled The Discipline of Grace. And it's all about how we grow in sanctification and he goes to this text. The grace of God trains us. The grace of God is so much greater than we could imagine. It doesn't only save us from our sins, but it transforms us into godly, holy, upright people who live according to God's law and who are zealous for good works. This is the purpose of this little book, Titus. What is God after in saving his elect? What does he want? We read in verse 14, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Last week, our brother Pastor Fisher referenced Romans 8.29. I love the language of that verse. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, for what reason? To be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That word firstborn doesn't mean that Jesus was like, like didn't exist at a certain time and then was born. Firstborn means like first in rank. In the way you might, we don't speak about it this way, but a firstborn son. Jesus is going to be the firstborn among many brothers. And what's going to glorify God, the reason he keeps saving people, is so that Jesus could have a bunch of lookalikes. People who have been born again and who have been turned more and more into that image of Christ. And as more and more people grow in faith and grow in godliness and they look more and more like the Lord Jesus, here's the goal, that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers who look like him. That brings honor and glory to God. Christ's likeness, godly lives, sanctification, holiness of life, personal piety before the Lord, these things honor God. And this is what Paul wants to say to Titus. How do you live faithfully in a Cretan context? Well, it's not necessarily going to be through social activism. It's not necessarily going to be through trying to beat people into your opinion or something like that. What the Cretans needed to know what they needed to hear, the solution for them was to live godly lives. <laughs> lives that stood out. Lives that honored the Lord. My brother, my sister, let me encourage you, do not entertain in your own heart, nor allow others to tell you that there's some kind of antithesis between knowledge and good works, between word and deed. Like, like, are you a word person or a deed person? Well, that church, they're, they're a really word-centered church. This church is a really deed-centered church. We reject that outright. We must have orthodoxy, right teaching, but we insist that we have with it orthopraxy, right practice, right life. Give me the Apostles' Creed, and give me with it the Sermon on the Mount, don't make any pretense of loving the triune God if you don't love your neighbor. Don't make any pretense of truly knowing the Lord if you are indifferent about mortifying sin in your life and living godly lives in the present time. The sort of knowledge of God that the Bible commends, that the apostles preached, is knowledge that accords with godliness. And I'll tell you what, if Christians were more known for loving the knowledge of God that leads to godly lives, how different would be the perception of Christians today? You ever been in Christian settings, church settings, where you feel like we're just being lectured to? Like we're just, it's like fine wine tasting. We love sound teaching. Oh, and we love this preacher's preaching, and we love this, you know, author's books or something like that. But it's just data hitting people. When can I get some more data? That's not how this is meant to work. 
Like we should love sound teaching. We should crave sound teaching. If you want to go deeper in your faith and in your knowledge of God and His Word, praise God. We've tried to encourage the members of this church in that. That's why we give away hundreds of dollars worth of books every year. So we want people growing in their knowledge of the truth. But that knowledge must produce. It's meant to lead to godliness of life. It's supposed to create and nurture a people who are zealous for good works. People who are not just hearers of the word, but doers also. That final phrase, Paul says, it's in hope of eternal life. This calling that the Apostle Paul had, it's for furtherance of faith in God's people. It's for their knowledge in accord with godliness in hope of eternal life. Paul is saying that the purpose for which he was called was in the hope of eternal life. In other words, it's in the hope that these elect ones will be saved at the last day. It's the hope of the gospel, that they will one day inherit eternal life. And this, Paul wants to set before the Cretans, that they're waiting a coming day in which the new heavens and new earth would be established, and eternal life would be their full possession. He doesn't encourage them in all their good works to try to create utopia on earth. Rather, they're to inherit utopia. There's coming eternal life that they're going to have. In the meantime, we're to grow in faith and in knowledge and in godliness, in hope that there is coming eternal life for those of us who are in Christ. My time is gone. There was one more question I wanted to ask, and that is what does this passage tell us about God? I'll just make the briefest of comments. What we learn about God in this passage, first of all, is that he promised the gospel before the ages began, and at the proper time, he called Paul and the other apostles to preach the word and reveal it to us. The second thing we learn about God is that little phrase, I mean, it's so wonderful, but it's just, just almost like an aside, God who does not lie, or God who never lies. Now, we could read that, and that's sweet to us, that's wonderful to us, especially if you, like almost everyone in the world, has been severely lied to in your life, or has lied yourself. But think about this. That phrase, God who never lies, is written to Cretans who are always liars, evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And I, I didn't mention this before, we'll talk about this later. The Cretans boasted in the fact that Zeus, the, the Greek god, some of you kids who know Greek mythology, uh, Zeus was born in Crete. And Zeus was known for lying in order to have relations with human women. And that's actually sort of praised by some of the Greeks, some of the Cretans. But here's this God who never lies. He doesn't lie like your Cretan friends and neighbors. He doesn't lie like the swindlers and deceivers downtown in the markets. He doesn't lie like Zeus. He's the God who never lies. Therefore, he can be trusted. And then we read, this is the third thing I would say, Twice, in these four verses, God is described as our Savior. Twice He's described as our Savior. Verse 3, Paul is entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Verse 4, Paul wishes Titus grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Savior is used as a title 12 times in the New Testament, every time in reference to God or Christ Jesus. Six times is in the book of Titus. Two times in chapter 1, two times in chapter 2, two times in chapter 3. It's like Paul wants to impress this on the Cretans again and again. It's God who saved you, and how badly these Cretans needed to know that. These Cretans would have had some terrible things in their backgrounds, some things that would make them ashamed. And they're surrounded by lawlessness and by evil. There are apparently false teachers in the church who were promoting such lawlessness and such deceit. But as Paul calls them to godly lives, lives marked by good works, he wants them to be reminded again and again and again and again, you have been called by God who is your Savior. That's to engender in them humility, gratitude, 
as to engender in them a desire to serve God all the more. It's to be an antidote against self-righteousness that in all their good works and all their godliness of life, never forget it's God who saved you. And it also was to signal that God would be a savior to any who come to him. That they could hope as they lived godly lives and as Titus tried to establish elders in that place and bring about some measure of church order, God didn't cease to be their savior. God was still their savior. He was a savior to any who would come to him in repentance and faith. And that truth is going to shine so brightly in this little book of Titus. The grace of God saves us. And that salvation is so great and so transformative that it trains us how to live godly lives in the present time. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray to you that in our consideration of this book over the coming weeks, that you would help us to grow in our faith and in our knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness to the degree that we live in, in an age similar to that of the Cretan Christians. We pray that you would help us to be faithful and to live according to these ideals, these instructions that you gave to them through your servant Titus. We pray, Father, that we would be a people committed to be hearers and doers of the word, to be committed not only to be lovers of the word, to those who are lovers of deed, that we would be a people that are zealous and passionate about good works. We pray that would engender in our church family here at Emmanuel such an attractive and compelling witness to the surrounding world, that people would look on at this community shaped and trained and disciplined by the grace of God, and that they would find something so wonderful, so beautiful, so otherworldly, so supernatural, that more would be drawn to this salvation, that more would be drawn to the grace of God through the example and witness, through the godly lives of your people. So help us now, Lord, to grow in faith and in knowledge and in godliness. For some here, we pray that would take place for the first time as they seek to come to the Lord Jesus Christ as who he is, a savior for sinners. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in keeping with our COVID protocols for the time being, uh, we encourage you as you exit this morning to please just use the doors to my right and left. Please don't go back downstairs and feel free to kind of move fellowship uh, out of those doors. I want to close with this benediction from Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.